Just a few moments to just continue this thought just real quickly today. And I know I'm using this handheld microphone. It sounds a little bit different, but it's just I have a purpose behind it. As I think about family and as you think about your family, let me just reiterate that statement that I just previously made. Family can be the most rewarding part of living in this fallen world. Matter of fact, there are times that's all you have left is your family and the love and the affection that you can receive. The reality is the modern family today looks different and is often assimilated differently than the traditional family. But within a structure of joy and blessing and security and love can come a season of trauma, travail, trial, confusion, strife, and pain and sorrow. Sometimes the most difficult days that you will ever endure will be because of an issue that's going on in your family. Sometimes there is no wound cut deeper than when someone within your family cuts you. Hello? Sometimes there is no disappointment greater in life than when you have found disappointed by somebody in your family or you have been disappointed by someone in your family. And sometimes our painful situation is self-inflicted. Sometimes we put our families at risk. Sometimes a member of our family makes a poor decision that brings trauma and travail upon the rest of the family. But other times... It's victimized by outside circumstances, something that's beyond your control, an event, a situation, a sickness, an accident, uh, some type of tragedy happens, and it was beyond your ability to control it. And it's been my observation from being a pastor for almost 20 years now and being in the ministry for almost 30 years now, there are, no, 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 over 30 years, there are times the only way to get peace, this is my observation, the only way to get peace or to recover from some situations, the only way to find true deliverance is through a supernatural work of God, where it goes beyond counseling, that it is where God and you have unlocked his power by your faith and God in his sovereign grace releases a blessing upon your family that allows the confusion and the contention and the strife and the pain and the sorrow to be driven away and the blessing and the favor of God to be obtained. Now, my observation has been this. Sometimes it just takes one person. That's all it takes, one person to be the catalyst for a miracle. Just one person gets a hold of a promise from God about the covenant blessings of God that belong to the family can begin to unlock the blessings of God for the entire family. As I trailed through scriptures, I was reminded that it was Moses' mother that by faith put her goodly child into a bulrush basket when he was three months of age and took him down to the banks of the Nile River and trusted him to the sovereign hand of God. And it was his sister Miriam looking upon when Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water and named him Moses because it meant that I have drawn him out of the water. It was Miriam that made the suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter that she would find a nurse 
nurse of the Hebrew women to nurse that child for her. And the mother that was in despair got her son back and got paid to nurse him on her own breast. Come on, somebody. That's a miracle from God. Rahab saved her entire house when she hid the spies and she trusted in a scarlet thread. The widow of Zarephath, when she honored the man of God and her household, when Elijah said, bake a cake and give it to me first. And if you do that and honor the man of God, then God's going to make sure that the cruise of oil does not fail and the barrel of meal does not waste away until rain is sent on the earth. And the Bible says her, her son, and her household. It wasn't just her miracle. It was a miracle for the family, but it was stimulated by her faith. The widow of the sons of the prophet, she saved her sons from a, life, a lifetime of servanthood by going to the man of God and unlocking in faith a miracle of provision in her own house when the miracle jars of oil began to multiply right there in her own home. The Shunammite woman blessed the man of God and later miraculously conceived a child from her aged husband. And later she and her son were miraculously granted and allowed to return to their own land that they had vacated during the time of the famine. Ruth was the key to Naomi returning to the land of her nativity and gaining full access and rights in Israel and in the land of Bethlehem. Uh, a Moabitist woman who was separated from the commonwealth of Israel was in essence grafted back in and a part of the family lineage of King David and as well as Jesus himself, all because it was stimulated by one woman that rolled her sleeves up and said, I'm going to trust the Lord. Your God will be, remember what she told Naomi when she was living in that land of Moab? She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you lay your head, I'll lay my head and I will trust in the Lord. Where you die, I will die there also. And her faith stimulated the blessing. One person, one person can stimulate the blessing of God and unlock the favor and the grace of God. Many of Jesus's miracles were related to the family, and I want to highlight one in particular today just very carefully, and we're going to read through it rather quickly. This is not my text of Scripture. This is not where I'm going to take you in a moment, but I just want you to see certain principles today that will get in your heart so that when you are in a situation, you will have principles of faith already inside of you that you can put in motion. It's in Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter. It's a familiar story to us. Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's come down from the mount with his three disciples. He left nine disciples, and when he arrives here, he begins to speak to the crowd that's gathered. And I'd like to read this here today. And the 14th verse says, When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and they run to him, and they greeted him. He asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son. So here's a desperate father who has a need that is so great that he's turning to this man, Jesus, who has a mute spirit, New King James English. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. The reality is, church family, sometimes there's a situation in your family that you're dealing with that is demonic in origin. 
Sometimes there's something behind the scenes. Sometimes there's a spirit at work. Sometimes it's not just a rebellious teenager. Sometimes it's not just a drug addiction. Sometimes it's not just a pattern of, uh, of brokenness. Sometimes behind it is an unseen demonic spirit that has to be dealt with. And I've learned through my growth in God that you don't counsel a demon spirit out. You don't administer prescriptions to, to, to medicate it out. It's got to be driven out by the authoritative word of Almighty God. And in this passage, we learned this. So I spoke to your disciples. Also, let me say this. Church is a good thing. It's a great thing. But if you're expecting us to fix all your family, then you are sadly mistaken, especially without your involvement. We cannot undo what you spent years doing. So they should cast it out, but they could not. Jesus is kind of exasperated. I'm only reading this very quickly. I want you to see just a couple of points today. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. They brought this mute or this child that has been demonized and, and is epileptic and is, is going through all of these convulsions. They bring him to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. Have you ever noticed when you get ready to bring something to God, something that you've resolved that can only be fixed by the help of God that it seems to not get better immediately, but sometimes it gets worse? Right before the dawn is the greatest storm. Come on, somebody. The greatest darkness. And immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground. He wallowed foaming at the mouth. And so Jesus asked the father and said, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And look at this spirit, what this spirit has done. And can you only imagine what was life, what life was like in the home when that spirit would take over that child? It would disrupt their evening meals. They might go up, get up in the morning, get prepared to go to work and all of a sudden this child has one of these fits it's being traumatized the whole family order is disrupted he's tormenting the child and in tormenting the child he's tormenting the family and often he is thrown him both into the fire into the water to destroy him but notice this man's words if you can do anything now that sounds very spiritual to pray this way if you can do anything have compassion on us but let me say this again I said it to you previously but I want to validate it doctrinally pity does not move God there's a lot of situations where pity can move God God is compassionate he is gracious but it's not just need that moves God that awakens the the, the power that lies within his word but it's when somebody believes God because Jesus said the issue is not whether or not I can do anything. The issue is not whether or not God has anointed me. The issue is whether or not you will believe. Because Jesus responded to that peculiar statement or question, but if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, what I'm looking for you to do is if will you believe in the midst of confusion and strife and turmoil, in the midst of the devil breaking into your children, can you stand up and square your shoulders back and say, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to exercise his power, his authority, and his dominion in this passage passage of scripture he said if you can believe what did he say here all 
Why did I want you to come to this passage when I'm talking about your family? Because I want you to know that with God, all things are possible. This is not, uh, this is not misquoted. This is not a misprint in the Word of God. These were words that flowed out of the mouth of Jesus. In essence, they were of the oracles of God. This is the heart of God to every one of us parents and grandparents who are striving to have a house and a household of order and blessing and favor that no matter what's going on in your house, you have to keep in your heart the possibility of God's divine power and grace and favor and that it won't always be like it is right now. It won't always, you won't always have to live your life in the turmoil and the trauma and the strife that you have lived previously. It is not the will of God for there to be contention and division. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? In your house, in your house, it is not the will of God for you to go home at night and there be conflict and anger and resentment and bitterness. I'm here to tell you with God, all things are possible and things can change. If you will put your faith and your trust in God and hold fast to your profession of faith without wavering. This passage goes further. He said this, immediately then the father of the child cried out, said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He said to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you you to come out of him and enter no more into him. Come out of him, Jesus said, and enter no more into him. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him and became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had come into the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind comes out but by nothing but by prayer and fasting the church family the reality is there are some times in your life when you have to discern what you're dealing with you have to know, are you dealing with an individual? Are you dealing with an attitude? Are you dealing with behavioral issues? Are you dealing with a demonic spirit that may be behind these things? And you have to be, are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Listen, this is not plague church this morning. This is the reality of, uh, of what can happen in your family. If you discern by the spirit of God that you're dealing with a the devil, then you're going to have to find a place and a means through the authoritative word of God to speak to that spirit, to command him to go, to know that you have authority and power in the name of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus rebuked this devil that for years from a child had, had tormented this young man, then you have the same authority. You have the same power that Jesus exercised. And you must trust that you do so. Walk through your house. Anoint your house with oil if you need to. Call the blessing of God upon it. Say things like this. Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. I give you no place. I command you to go. I command you to leave my sons and my daughters and my grandchildren. You can't have my spouse. You can't have our health. You can't have the sanctity of our home. I demand you in the authority of the name of Jesus to go I command you by the anointing of God that's upon my life you have no place here go in Jesus name hello somebody go I'm telling you and you said pastor if I don't see my breakthrough what am I gonna do I'm gonna pray again the same way the next day and then if I need to fast I'll fast But I'm going to get my breakthrough because it's a covenant promise from God. I'm going to be blessed. My children are going to be blessed. My house is going to be blessed. My household, blessed is the man. Come on, somebody. His children shall be blessed after him. 
but you have to believe. And I challenge you, and I chose that passage of Scripture to just allow you to see Jesus working with a father who was uh, distraught with the condition of his son, and Jesus did not pity him, but spoke powerfully to him concerning his own faith. My question for you today is, do you believe? Do you believe a faith that will not waver, a faith that will not succumb, a faith that will not give in or give up? Come on, somebody. A faith that refuses to accept anything other than what God promised. That trusts the Lord and says, God, I know that you have destined us, our house and our household, for more than what we're living in right now. I want to take you back in time for a few moments today in closing today with a familiar story. It was on my heart. It's one of the most familiar stories to me in the Word of God in the context of family. And it's in the the life of a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob comes to us in Scripture in trauma. He just came out in trauma. He was inside his mother's womb. He was the promised child of Isaac. And Abraham's seed, Isaac, was the promised child. And now this was the promised child that was given to Rebekah because she was barren for a while. And Isaac had prayed and petitioned God on her behalf. And God had granted, uh, had heard his prayer. And her barren womb was filled with life. And, and, and there was a twisting up on the inside of her. And, and a prophetical word came to her and said, there are two nations in your womb. And they were striving together. And there was strife from the very very beginning from the time that they were born these two boys one was named Jacob the other was named Esau unfortunately as they aged and they grew up in their household there was favoritism favoritism is a difficult thing you have to be very careful as a parent come on somebody not to create unhealthy competitions between your children are you hearing what I'm saying today and the Bible says that Isaac loved Esau because he was a, a man of the field he would go out and go hunting that meant he would drive a four-wheel drive you know he could, as they say, he could skin a buck and run a trot line. He probably sat up late and watched the Razorbacks lose to Texas A&M when they ought to have won and then been sorrowful all throughout it. He was just that kind of man. But the Bible says that Jacob, on the other hand, dwelt in tents. He was, uh, he won the Homec Award in high school. And it wasn't that he didn't have uh, masculine qualities, but he found structure and safety around his mother. And so he was, uh, he was loved by his mother. And the scripture tells us that that Jacob actually, he actually, uh, he, he had a moment where he caught Esau coming from the field, and Esau was famished. I know many of you know that story. Esau was famished. He had been out hunting. He hadn't taken any game, and, and there's Jacob, and he's stirring a pot of lentil soup, and, and Esau says, would you give me some of the soup? And he said, well, you know, you hadn't always been the kindest to me. I might give you some if you'll sell me your birthright, birthright that belonged to the firstborn son. Esau was the firstborn son. Esau is so famished in that moment he foolishly trades he's recognized later in scripture for the error of his way that he would trade his birthright for one bowl of lentil soup and he said what is this birthright to me now if I perish and he traded it for a bowl of soup and so that didn't do anything but just heighten the division and the contention between those two boys and the scripture tells us that Isaac grew older and as he grew older uh, that, that there would come a moment when before he died he wanted to make sure that he blessed 
just what we spoke about earlier, that he would lay his hands on his sons and he would speak blessing over them. I know many of you are familiar with this account in Scripture too. Rebecca heard about, uh, had heard that Isaac had told Esau, go out into the field, take an animal and cook the animal, bring it back to me. I want to eat of the field, the venison from the field before I bless you. I want my heart to be merry. I want to eat of the field and drink of the cup and I want to bless you and bless your household. Rebecca heard about it. Esau gets his bow and arrow and goes out into the field. Rebecca quickly moves Jacob. They kill a kid in the flock. They put the skins on his neck to make him smell like the field. Isaac is dim-eyed. He comes in and he blesses Jacob. At first he said, your voice sounds like Jacob. He is supposed to be Esau. He said, but bring, come near to me because you sound like Jacob and I'm going to bless Esau. But when he put his hands on the skins that had been made and put on his neck and he smelled like the field, he spoke a prophetical blessing upon him, making him the recipient of the blessing of the firstborn. Many of you are familiar with that story. Esau then comes in later, finds out that his father has blessed Jacob and he is saddened. He cries. He asks for a blessing. He gets a measure of a blessing, but not the fullest blessing. And then there is turmoil in his heart. He determines that he will wait until his daddy dies. And when he is, when he is dead and mourning is over, he will kill his brother Jacob. Let me know that's trauma in the home. That sounds like some folks that I know whose houses are so contentious and so much strife. And so Rebecca hears about Esau's intent to kill his brother Jacob, that she talks to Isaac and says, you know what? I don't want Jacob taking a son of these Canaanite women in the land that we now dwell. So let's send him to my brother Laban and let him take a wife of Laban's household. And so the Bible says that Isaac called uh, Jacob and they bless him and they send him away. And he takes nothing but a staff in his hand and a little script, just a little pouch of goods to get him along the journey. And one of the most important passages in all the Word of God occurs right in the heart of this story. It's in Genesis chapter 28. I've alluded to it many times, and I want to remind you of it today. As Jacob is making this journey on the very first day, he stops at a certain place, and as the sun begins to set, he does not have a pillow to rest his head on, so he takes a stone, and he lays his head on the stone. And when he goes to sleep with his head pillowed on that stone, the Bible said God appears to him. And God speaks to him in a dream. And God says, I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac, and I will be your God as well. And the Bible says that Jacob saw in a vision an a ladder going up from the earth to heaven, and angels descending and ascending upon the ladder and when Jacob woke up in the morning from that miraculous dream he suddenly uh, discerned something he wipes the sleep out of his eyes and he realizes something you heard me reference it two weeks ago on Sunday morning he recognizes something that he had not recognized previously that is the manifested presence of almighty God and he said he said this is nothing more than the house of God he said God's presence was here and I did not even know it. How awesome is this place? And he took that rock and he took oil out of his pouch and he poured oil on the rock and he consecrated that place and he committed his life to God. And he said, God, if you'll bless me and bring me back to my family's household, he said, I'll serve you all the days of my life and I'll give you a tenth of all you prosper me with the way that you did, the way that my father Abraham did and Isaac did. And he called that place Bethel, the house of God. 
It's a miraculous story of dedicating that place to God. He spends the next 20 years in the household of Laban, his uncle. And there he obtains two women as his wives, Rachel and Leah. And there they build a big lineage of family. Twelve sons plus daughters come out of their family. But during this time, God miraculously blesses Laban. I'm going through a condensed brief story from the 27th chapter of the book of Genesis to bring you back to where we're going to read seven verses in conclusion of the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. But I want you to follow the story with me for just a few moments in time. And Laban, during the 20 years that Jacob is serving Laban, Laban's not right towards him. He cheats him of his wealth. He cheats him of his wages. And so uh, Jacob is frustrated. And so Jacob calls out to God and God begins to bless him. It's It's a miraculous story that God took the wealth of Laban and began to transfer it. Come on now, when God gets ready to bless you, he don't have to ask President Obama. Come on, somebody. He can bless you when he gets ready to bless you. And he began to bless Jacob with all the wealth and all the sheep and all the goats. If, if his wages was the speckled goat, then all the goats had speckled uh, offspring. If they were the streaked goats, then all the uh, goats had streaked. If they were all solid colors, uh, if, if that's why he kept changing the wages because he was trying to get back what God was transforming. I'm, tell, I'm looking for the day when the world is trying to get back what we've got because God has transferred it into our hands. Come on, somebody. And finally, later Laban realizes that this is the sovereign hand of God. He's angry and jealous towards uh, Jacob. And Jacob uh, realizes it's no longer safe for him to dwell there with the, uh, with the, the, the father of his wives. And, and so, but God appears to him. God appears to him in a dream. And he says, Jacob, I want you to go back to the land of your family. I want you to go back there, and I want you to dwell there. And so Jacob talks to his wives, and they determine that it's right for them to leave, and they make their long journey back from the house of Laban back to the land of Canaan. This is the story along the way when, ja- when Jacob actually uh, sends his sons and daughters and his wives over the river Jabbok, and there he awaits for the sun to rise because he's afraid of meeting Esau, afraid that his anger is not relented, afraid that there'll be war and conflict. He's become an entire house and household. He's got men servants and maid servants and cattle and sheep and he's got these 12 sons and all these daughters and he's got two wives and two maid servants and he's afraid that Esau's going to come attack him and so there in the night he, he he's crying out to God and an angel comes to him he discerns the moment as supernatural you got to learn to discern supernatural moments you got to learn when something is out of the ordinary when it's beyond just a normal sir so you can sit in a church and a service can be ordinary and there are times though it can be out of the ordinary it can be a moment when God's presence is here and you got to get hold of it. And Jacob knew that this was a moment when he could gain the confidence to face his brother Jacob or Esau. And so he wrestled that angel all the way through the night and he refused to let go of him. And the angel said, let go of me. I must depart. He said, I will not let go. That's the type of faith we need in the church again. I will not let go of you until you bless me. And he blessed him, and he said, you know what? You're never going to be the same from this moment forward. In days gone by, they called you Jacob. You were a deceiver, but because you have wrestled with God and you have prevailed, your name will no longer be a deceiver, a manipulator. You'll no longer be tied to your past, but I speak a prophetical blessing over your future. You will no longer be a deceiver, but you will be a prince. You will be called Israel, and from you will come kings and kings and generations of people 
shall come out of you because of your travail in prayer on that sanctified night there beside the brook Jabbok. It's a powerful moment. I encourage you to read it later. But it still did not fully relinquish the fear that Jacob felt from going and meeting Esau again. But oddly enough, this is what's so awesome about God. Sometimes you wallow in anxiety and worry, strife about attempting to resolve a conflict. And sometimes if you'll just learn to trust the Lord and leave it in his hands. You know, they used to say this, I laid it on the altar and I left it there. When he does meet Esau, Esau's anger has relented. And he welcomes Jacob back and he falls on his neck and he kisses him and the two brothers are united. Jacob determines to not follow Esau back to his immediate household and he lives in a little community called Shechem. It's the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis where the story gets interesting before we close today. And once he buys a parcel of land, establishes, begins to establish his household, the scripture says this. The scripture says that the men of Shechem began to look upon the daughters of Jacob and want to marry them. And then a very tragic thing happened. The prince of Shechem fell in lust and in love for Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he caught her alone in the field one day. And he violated her. And he raped her. And when news got back to Jacob, Jacob's sons were filled with anger. But Jacob was filled with fear. He was afraid of what would happen if he stood up and defended his daughter. And it created anger amongst his sons. So his sons plotted. And his sons went out without Jacob knowing it. And they arranged a relationship, a marriage relationship between the sons of Shechem of the city. They would give their daughters to their sons if the men of the city would circumcise themselves because they could not be in relationship with someone who was not circumcised. So the men of the city wanting the children and wanting the goods that this man possessed circumcised themselves. And the Bible says on the second day when the men were sore and unable to defend themselves, Jacob's sons go in. And with a sword in their hand, they kill every man in the little village of Shechem. And when Jacob hears about it, he is distraught. He is so, he doesn't know how to respond. And the brothers are distraught because they don't believe their dad cared enough about their daughter, about his daughter, to do something about it. So they did it themselves. But Jacob is afraid for his whole family because he's afraid that the other cities around will hear of what they did and that they will come and they will slaughter his entire household. So it's a turbulent moment. Tension is high. A daughter's been violated. Blood is upon the hands of his sons. There's conflict in the house. The men don't know the sons are trying to grow up into uh, mature men and they are trying to honor their dad, but then they are disappointed in their dad's course and action. When all of a sudden, God steps in on the scene. And that's where I bring you to in closing today. Because I'm telling you, there comes a moment in your life that's so traumatic, the only answer is to respond to the voice of God. Let's go to Genesis 35, and let's read this together today if we can. Because this word echoes in my spirit. Oh, how I see it, and I think about it, and I meditate upon it. If you can post that for me, Andrea, on the screen. And God said to Jacob, Arise. I want you to go back to Bethel. There's 
turmoil in your family. There's trauma in your house. Your sons no longer trust you. You no longer trust your sons. Here's what you need to do, Jacob. You need to take your house. You need to take your household. You need to take your family. You need to get back to church. You need to get back to the house of God. You need to get back to where God first appeared to you. You need to get back to the place where his presence was fresh in your life. You need to get back to the place where you were still moved and stirred when you were thinking about the awesomeness of who God is. And I want you to know I felt in my heart when I came to this service today that somebody in this room would be seated in this house today and you would hear the voice of Pastor Brown today saying, you need to get back to Bethel. You need to get back to a place of communion with God. You've drifted. You've grown distant. There's contention in your house. There's contention in your household. And the only answer for you is to get back to Bethel. Get back to the place where you can commune with God unhindered and unrestrained. Get back to the place where you got joy in your heart. Get back to the place where you're serving God and you're not playing the hypocrite. Get back to the place where there's no idols in your house, in your house. So get back to that place where you say, God, I'm yours and you're mine. Get back to the place where you can say, God, in him I live, in him I move, and in him I have my very being. Get back to your first love. Get back to that place in God where you commune with God. Get back to that place. Go back to Bethel. You can sit in church every week and not be at Bethel. Bethel's the place of communion. Bethel's the place where you become aware of his presence. People come to church every week totally unaware of the presence of God. We sing. People around you weep. Some come to the altar and worship, and you are unmoved by the presence of God. Get back to the place. Let me tell you this, number two, if you want a miracle, if you want a miracle in your family, Look at this. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods. It's time to stop playing the hypocrite. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? There is so much hypocrisy in the contemporary American church. Come on, we're at church on Sunday mornings, and we've been down at the VFW on Saturday nights. I'm telling you, there's hypocrisy, there's fornication, there's drunkenness. I know people are playing the game. I'm telling you, it's time. God's looking for a purified people. If you want a miracle and you need a miracle in your household, you cannot petition God with sin in your heart at that level. You've got to be at the place where your heart is clean before the Lord and your life is clean. And you've got to put away. I'll tell you, I grieve. I grieve over the American church today because we have so much absorbed our American culture into our lifestyle when there there is very little distinction between the lifestyle of someone that is unsaved and somebody that is saved. Let me tell you, if you dwell at Bethel, then you need to put away your strange gods. You need to stop watching the stuff you used to watch. You need to stop listening to the stuff that you used to listen to. It's time to stop hanging out with the people that you used to hang out with. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? We need something done in our heart and our life that creates a distinction. Jacob knew if he was going to go back to Bethel, he couldn't carry his idols. He couldn't carry all this... Uh, all this strife and contention, he had to put it away. So I challenge you today, put it away. Make a decision. You're going to follow God, third verse. Put it away. And so he said, let us arise. 
Go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, who was with me in the way which I went. Fourth verse, take all that you used to be, all that you had your hands involved in, and hide it under a tree. Put it under the cross. Put it under the blood. Confess it to God. Say, God, I, re I repent before you of my life and my lifestyle. I've brought all this mess into my house and my household. My children don't respect me. There's contention between me and the missus. I don't know what to do. There's anger. I speak evil towards them and they speak evil to me. Somebody needs to bury it under the old oak tree. Somebody needs to bury it under the cross of Calvary. Somebody needs to take it to a place where you say, God, I repent. I leave it here and I'm going to get back to the house of God. I'm going to get back to the place of that sweet fellowship with you. And lastly, in closing today, as I bring Daryl back up on the platform with me, if he would, please. It's there. Let's follow this down. The next three verses we'll read in conjunction together. And they journeyed. The terror of God was upon the cities that round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. Seventh verse. And there he built an altar. And he called the place El Bethel. Because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Let's talk about that as we close today. It's an amazing thing that happened the second time that he journeyed to Bethel. He had an experience with God there that if we were to take the time to read the next six verses, we would discover that was even deeper than the first appearance. When he awakened out of sleep 20 years earlier and he anointed the rock that particular day, he was aware that that was the house of God. He called it Bethel, the house of God. But on this day, something was more, what uh, was of a greater realization of not the house of God, but the God of the house. El is God in Hebrew, and it is El Bethel. He is the God of the house. But it's those five, ver five or six words right there that start this passage off that I'm closing with today because it's a lost art in our church today for our families. Notice what Jacob did. Jacob built there an altar. He built there an altar. Do y'all know what that even means? He built an altar. He took stones from the hillside. He sacrificed unto God. He consecrated himself. Flame would leap up off of an altar in dedication to God. He was saying as he built an altar, there, an altar, there is but one God, one true God, and God, I worship you. You know, when I was new to the church in the early, mid-80s, not new to the church, I'd been a part of the church when I became a, a part of the spirit-filled movement in the mid-80s. It was not uncommon for people to understand this language. It was not uncommon for them to understand what it meant to build an altar. To build an altar means that you stop and you say, God, I'm going to build an altar right here. I'm going to consecrate this moment. I'm going to consecrate this time. I'm going to dedicate myself. I'm going to dedicate my family, my house, and my household. I'm going to commit myself fully and completely to you. Are you all hearing what I'm saying today? Build an altar and commit yourself to God. There Jacob built an altar, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And God heard him, and God answered him, and God spoke prophetical words to him because he built an altar that caused him to have promise that he can now speak blessing over his sons and his daughter. And God healed relationships because there Jacob built an altar. I've thought within myself how much trauma 
in our families could be resolved. If men and women would just learn to build an altar. I'm just preaching simplistic truths that ought to be deep in the heart of every one of us. That we say, God, do you even know what it means to bring your family to the altar? Do you even know what it means to come and say, God, I can't fix this situation. I need the help of God. I need the moment where God breaks in upon my life. I feel that today. You know, when I was praying, and I, I, a, a moment flashback in my childhood. I'm going to share this today. I meant to ask my dad about it to, uh, to make sure I wasn't evangelizing it. Because you know how sometimes you can evangelize something in your mind. And I don't like to open up little moments of our family here today. And so Papa will be a little bit nervous right now. It'll be okay, Papa. I'll keep it between the white line and the yellow line. But I remember a moment when, in our family, when I was living off, we were living off of Cooterneck Road on Hidden Valley when I was 12 years old. And my sister caused a lot of trauma in my family when she was a teenager. Now, let me just say this. She's not the only teenager that's ever caused trauma in a household. But she is saved, filled with the Spirit, authentically a follower, a radical follower of Jesus today. But it was traumatic at times. And Papa, can know, he knows, it, was, it just put tension on our household. It, it just did. And I remember one day, I remember this became fresh to me as I was praying yesterday. I hadn't thought of this in years and years and years. But I can't, Mom and Dad did a pretty good job of shielding me. I wasn't quite as contentious as she was. I was more a peacemaker. And so they would shield me from some of the trauma and travail at times. But I remember that things had gotten so bad that it had put such pressure on the whole structure of the family. And my mom, she was a very high-strung person and, and kind of impulsive and, re and reactionary. And, and, and this was putting pressure. And mom wanted, I remember this day. I hadn't thought of these thoughts in years. Mom wanted to take me and leave so that dad could deal with Sheila because she had just reached exasperation. You ever reached exasperation? Have you ever wanted to flee rather than stay and endure? Every one of us have. Come on, somebody. And, but I'm telling you, sometimes that may be the only answer. So I'm not, don't, you can't judge everything by that situation. Sometimes you got to get out, right? But in this moment, at 12 years of age, my heart was really being torn. That was a tough moment. I, I can still remember the, the trauma of just hearing those words because I think God gave me discernment a little bit. And I don't know the depth of our conversations, but I remember this. And I don't even know if, I, if, if Papa is aware of this right here. But I went out into our yard, and it was a cloudy day. It was, really, it was a cloudy day. It was late, like November, December. It was cool outside. And I was 12 years old, and I walked in the yard, and I cried as I walked. And I got saved when I was eight, and I got authentically saved. Now, I didn't grow at the level that I should have grown until I was 16 and 17 when I received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But I did have authentic faith. You know what I'm talking about. It was genuine. It was real to me. And I walked in that yard, and I prayed at 12 years of age. And I said, God, I think it was my first movement at, as a pastor. I said, God, 
I don't feel like this is right for our family. I'm afraid of where this can go. What can happen when, if the family fragments? We may not ever come back together. Are y'all hearing what? That was the fear that was in my heart. And I walked and I said, God, I'm praying. I ask you to help me. Help me. Let me go and see if I can talk and be some type of mediator. I'm saying that with words that I know now, but I didn't know then. But I just asked God to help me at 12 years of age to talk. It wasn't dad. Dad didn't want this, but it was mom that was wanting it because she was so exasperated and so frustrated and she didn't know what to do. And God preserved the sanctity of our family. I believe, even though it may have been unknown to mom and dad, that a 12-year-old boy went out in the yard and built an altar. And I called on the name of God. I didn't have the answers. I didn't have the resources. I didn't know what to do. But I knew that if I called on God, he might be willing to help. And that's what I want you to know today. When you need a miracle before God, call on his name. Build an altar. Just build an altar. Just come to that place where you just present yourself and lay yourself out and say, God, I don't know what to do, but all I can do is just call on your name. Would you help me, God? I trust you today. So I want to ask you if you're here today and you have a family situation that's so real, so difficult that you just say, Pastor Brown, today, I want to call upon the name of the Lord. I want to ask you, be courageous. Be courageous right now. It's a little bit after 12. I know some of you have got to go, but let me say this. Don't let anything distract you from building an altar today. Would you have the courage to get up from where you're seated right now and make your way to the front and join with me, and we're going to pray a collective prayer as a family, and we're going to ask God. We're going to join our faith with your faith that God, the God of Bethel, come on, somebody, the El Bethel, the God of the house, will hear. He will hear your petition today. He will hear your cry. Is there anyone else today? I know there's more today. I know there's more. I know because I prepare my heart for this message today. And I want to encourage you. Don't let this moment pass by. Don't let this moment go past you and say, well, it's okay. I don't want people to see. I don't want, it doesn't matter. When there's real issues in your life, it doesn't matter what other people may think, what matters is that you get the favor and the blessing. You get the miraculous response of God. And God gives favor and blessing and grace to you and to your house and to your household today. In the name of Jesus. In the name of the Lord today.